Chapter 10 of Religion and Health. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That is L I B R I V O X dot O R G. Religion and Health by James Joseph Walsh. Chapter 10 Purity. Nothing has worked so much detriment to the health of mankind for many centuries as the habits that may be generalized under the term impurity. Until recent years, it has been the custom to suppress the knowledge of the immense physical evil that was being worked by humanity by the venereal diseases. A generation ago, it was only imperfectly known, but now we recognize that no set of diseases are more important for the race and its health than those which usually occur as the direct result of violations of the moral code. Their ravages have increased just in proportion to the gradual diminution of the influence of religion during the past few generations. They have probably worked greater havoc on the better classes than the poorer classes. There are nations like the Irish, over whom religion has a strong hold, in which the injury worked by these diseases have been almost negligible. There have been classes of men like the clergymen, deeply under the influence of religion, who have escaped almost entirely the awful, destructive effects of these affections. We have only just waked up to the realization of how much this element of conduct, so profoundly influenced by religion, has meant for suffering and death among men. In spite of the fact that there was a conspiracy of silence with regard to the venereal diseases, something of their fearful effectiveness in adding to mortality lists came to be known, at least by those who were interested in the subject a generation ago. Though every possible excuse was taken not to list death as due to these diseases during the 25 years before 1900, when just after the smug mid-Victorian period, the conspiracy of silence was at its highest and was particularly hidebound to England. No less than 60,000 deaths from venereal diseases were registered by the English Registral General. Nearly 25,000 or these are females. Over 2,000 deaths a year is a pretty heavy toll, but such statistics give only the very faintest hint of the awful ravages of these diseases. It is not alone death that occurs as a consequence of them but long years of suffering and crippling of various kinds, the blinding of children and the birth of dead or idiotic children, or of other poor little ones who grew up to be epileptic or to become insane in early adult life, or to exhibit other sad marks of the diseases of their parents. Civil statistics of these diseases mean very little, especially in English-speaking countries, because of our prudentry with regard to them. Army medical statistics, however, have had to be rigorously kept because of the amount of military inefficiency due to these affections. The statistics of the last generation in England show that it was not an unusual thing for nearly one in four of the soldiers in the regiment to be admitted to the hospital each year because of a venereal disease. Actually, nearly one in five of the affected strength of regiments were constantly in a hospital because of these diseases. It is improbable that soldiers are notably more immoral than civilians of the same class, except that perhaps there has been an army of tradition of greater contempt for these affections. So far as large cities are concerned, many good medical authorities are convinced that average young men of the population suffer to about the same extent as soldiers. Actually, something more than three out of five in the English army suffered at some time from these diseases and as they are extremely difficult to cure and often continue to have serious effects for years, as well as being contagious for others, 
we get some idea of what an immense amount of harm has been worked by them. It might possibly be thought that conditions in America were better than in Europe in this regard, but our experience during the war did not justify any such optimism. Nearly 6% of the men mobilized for the army in the United States actually showed signs of these diseases when they were admitted for examination on arrival in camp. This percentage does not include those who had been cured prior to their examination. From some of the cities of this country, the proportion of young men actually suffering at the time of their enlistment from these diseases was more than 1 in 10. And from certain of the southern cities, it actually approached very close to 1 in 5. According to the statement of the Surgeon General of the War Department, diseases due to impurity consisted of the greatest cause of disability in the army. When the physicians were given the opportunity to make a more careful examination of the second million of the draft than had been possible for the first, the percentage of diseased men ran up notably. In spite of the fact that warnings in the matter led a great many of those who were drafted to seek proper treatment before presenting themselves at the camps. We have waked up at last to something like the full significance of these diseases in the destruction of the race. The American Social Hygiene Association, in its publication number 250, Conquering an Old Enemy, dared to tell the story of these affections very straightforwardly. There are many physicians connected with this association, and its opinions are thoroughly conservative and not at all hysterical. We get a striking idea of the destructiveness of these diseases from an early paragraph of the publication. Quote, in these United States and in this year of peace, 1920, more lives than the whole empire of Great Britain lost during any year of the Great War will be flicked out by two diseases which are curable and preventable diseases. Nor will the year 1920 stand alone. In the four and a half years of intensive warfare between 1914 and 1918, the 15 civilized nations which fought at Armageddon gave to these twin scourges a heavier toll than they did to bullets, shells, gas, air bombs, all the ghastly, wholesale killers of modern battle. Quote the, end. the more important of these diseases is estimated by authorities to kill annually in the United States more than 300,000 people. It is far more deadly than tuberculosis and carries off every year nearly, if not quite, as many lives as influenza at the height of its epidemicity. France lost during the four years and four months of Armageddon 1,350,000 lives in battle. We lost almost as many during the same time from this affection, which a few years ago we were ostrich-like hiding ourselves by refusing to look at it. The other of these affections is probably responsible for more serious suffering in women and female complaints that require operation as well as blindness in children than any other single factor that we have in modern life. There is no element that has so seriously interfered with the simple joys of existence, the raising of children and family life in peace and happiness, as this affection. When it is realized how many complications and sequelae may develop from these diseases, but above all how much harm may be done to innocent wives and children, some notion of the suffering that has thus been inflicted on mankind will be obtained. The one significant factor in the control of this source of ill health has been religion. Just in proportion as religion has lost its hold over the rising generation, there has been a marked increase in this particular mode of ill health. The only effective break on human passion has been religious feeling, but above all religious training. 
If religion had done nothing else than limit the noteworthy extent, the irregular living consequent upon yielding to passion, that would be sufficient to itself to make not only personal but community health greatly in debt to religion. Other motives have at times been appealed to, and sometimes with apparently good results for the time being, but never with any enduring effectiveness against the flood tide of feeling which comes over those who have had no practice in self-repression and who have not learned to appeal to the higher motives to help them in this matter. For a great many young men, sowing their wild oats has been sowing a crop of seeds whose products have meant the ruination of their own lives but unfortunately also only too often of the lives of their future wives and their unborn children. We know now that the great majority of all the blind children in our blind asylums owe their blindness to one of these venerable affections. Three out of five, at least of the imbeciles and epileptics in our institutions, derive their mental trouble from the other of these diseases. We hear a good deal about young folks seeing life but for many of the processes which has been thus lightly glossed over should be described literally as seeing death. Since the unfortunate breakdown of religion to a considerable extent in the last few generations and its tendency to change into a mere social influence at most, there has been a great increase in the prevalence of these diseases. Some of this undoubtedly due to our modern city life and its temptations, but the individual attitude toward life means more. St. Teresa said, quote, when the individual is well grounded in faith, the temptation means little. Quote end. An attempt has been made to control the power of temptations and repress the passions of men by other means. Above all, knowledge of the awful sex disease dangers which they were running has been turned to as hopeful remedy in this matter. It was thought that young folks could be terrified by the knowledge of the hideous possible consequences of their acts and to avoiding lapses would occasion them. In spite of the fact that practically all of our prominent psychologists have opposed any such method as this, a great many people who have very little right to an opinion have insisted that this policy must be followed in our schools. There is probably nothing that could do more harm than this. The diffusion of the knowledge of the immense amount of serious, even fatal, disease consequent upon sex irregularities suddenly thrust upon the world has made a great many people a little hysterical and has tempted them to turn to remedies which are not only not likely to be helpful, but are almost sure to be vicious in their consequences. It is like finding that a child has swallowed some poison and in the excitement administering another with the vague hope that one may neutralize the other. Professor Forrester of the Department of Psychology and Ethics at the University of Munich does not hesitate to say that such teaching is sure to do harm and not good. He has suggested that, quote, in making use of the intellect to restrain sex instincts, there is every danger of the intellect itself. Through excessive familiarization with details of such knowledge, being captured and employed in the service of the enemy, quote, end. He praises the older teachers, quote, the great educators of the past who have all been instinctively aware of this truth and have hence strongly insisted on the importance of cultivating a sense of shame for they have realized that the chief task of sexual education is not to attract the attention of the young to sex matters, but as far as possible to distract them from it. Quote end. 
Professor Musterberg of Harvard University took very strong ground against the teaching of sex hygiene in public schools and stated his opinion quite as emphatically as Professor Foister that such teaching, even though it be given with the best of intentions, is sure to do more harm than good. He said, quote, The cleanest boy or girl cannot give theoretical attention to the thoughts concerning sexuality without the whole mechanism for reinforcement automatically entering into action. We may instruct with the best intention to suppress, and yet our instruction itself must become a source of stimulation, which unnecessarily creates a desire for improper conduct. The policy of silence showed an instinctive understanding of this fundamental situation. Even if that traditional policy had had no positive purpose, its negative function, its leaving at rest the explosive sexual system of the youth, must be acknowledged as one of those wonderful instinctive procedures by which society protects itself. A nation which tries to lift its sexual morality by dragging the sexual problems to the street for the inspection of the crowd without shyness and without shame, and which willfully makes them objects of gossip and stage entertainment is doing worse than Muchansen when he tried to lift himself by his scalp. It would be perfectly easy to give many other quotations from prominent psychologists who agree with Foister and Munsterberg on this matter. What is forgotten is how large a role suggestion plays in all matters relating to conduct, but particularly sex conduct. The exhibition of such ordinary crimes as, quote, a second-story work, quote, end, climbing porches in order to steal while the family are at meals, the picking of pockets and the like on the reels of moving pictures has been found to be followed over and over again by the occurrence of such crimes among the boys and even the girls in the neighborhood where the exhibition was given. Girls see a woman's reticule cleverly rifled in the street car or on the crowded corner and, tempted by the cleverness of it, they are led to imitate the action. In many cities, the police refuse to allow such reels to be exhibited unless the punishment for the crime completes the picture. Even with this, however, it has been found that such exhibitions prove criminally suggestive. For the young folks, remember the cleverness and think for, of the fun that one can have with the money. While the punishment is, if not forgotten, at least so pushed into the background of memory as to have a comparatively little deterrent effect. If this is true with regard to indifferent actions of this kind, the temptations to which are more or less artificial, or but of comparatively slight allurement, it is easy to understand how serious and profound can be the suggestive power of sex knowledge for which there is likely to be so prudent a curiosity and with regard to which there are in the best regulated healthy individuals bodily stirrings almost as soon as the mind begins to be occupied with them for that is the danger that even in the best of men the physical sex impulse may be awakened in those who for professional reasons are quite familiar with sex matters as for instance the physician the dwelling on sex subjects, even in matters of disease, may arouse physical elements in the system, and these may react to deepen the attention and to other considerations may be quite pushed into the background of consciousness. If this is true for older people, how much more so for the young, who have not yet been disillusioned on sex subjects and whose inhibitions are likely to be so much weaker? A great many of the people who are so intent on sex education apparently do not realize that their very tendency to occupy themselves with the subject so much is due to unconscious physical stirrings within themselves, consequent upon preoccupation of mind with these subjects to the exclusion of healthier considerations. The imparting of knowledge often serves only to awaken sleeping passions unsuspected before in the organism. 
everyday experience shows how little knowledge helps. The people whose sex divagations get most frequently into our courts are those between 35 and 50 years of age. There is no question at all that they know enough to keep them right, if knowledge made for righteousness. I have said elsewhere, and I know it to be true, that medical students, in spite of their knowledge of the consequences of venery, are not better, but on an average a little worse in these matters than other students in the universities. Their knowledge, like all knowledge, acts as a suggestion to evil much more than a protection against the vice. When temptation comes, they are likely to think of possibility of avoiding the worst evils and of the powers of medicine. And anyhow, youth always feels in the expressive French phrase, on murt les autres. People die? Oh yes, other people. The one factor in life that will give the most precious aid in the protection of humanity against sexual temptations is religion. All the higher religious have emphasized the virtue of purity, that is, or freedom from sex vice, as the greatest importance. For Christianity, this has been a cornerstone for the spiritual life without which righteousness, to use the good old-fashioned word which indicated that men went right in life, was impossible. We are a little afraid of these old-fashioned religious words in our time, and we use such expressions as go straight. Somewhat as during the war, the soldiers used the expression, go west, in order not to have to mention the solemn word, death. But the old-fashioned words expressed exactly the meaning that we want, and they often carry valuable suggestions with them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ held out his highest rewards in heaven for those who practiced purity. He insisted, however, not on purity of body alone, but on purity of mind and heart, when he said, quote, Blessed are for the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Quote end. The headmaster of Harrow, the great public school in England, proclaimed a very great truth that we all know, but need to be reminded of, when he said to his young men at Harrow that, quote, the Bible does not so much speak as thunder against impurity. And it is no injustice to a secularistic morality to say that purity received from the lips of Jesus Christ a dignity, nay, a paramount authority which it cannot receive from human lips. Nor is personal chastity the same thing if it be taken to be a sanitary or conventional or moral practice, as if it be a duty resulting from the sanctity of the body as a temple of the indwelling spirit of God. Dr. Norman Porritt, in his book on religion and health, does not hesitate to say that religion is the only factor that can be helpful in this extremely important matter of the prophylaxis of sex disease. He goes so far as to say that, quote, give to the tempted the reinforcement of religion, and you place him in a position well high impregnable, quote end. It has been well said that if the man who first wrote honesty is the best policy meant that people should be honest because that was sure to rebound to their own benefit in the end, he was a rascal at heart. In something the same way Dr. Porritt suggests that to teach that purity is the best policy is to take an extremely low motive for the purpose of combating one of the most alluring temptations that man has. He says very emphatically and yet surely with a great deal of common sense, quote, and what is to be the remedy for the scourge which is incapacitating and crippling a fifth part of the nation's manhood? checking the natural expansion of population and sweeping unknown thousands to untimely graves. There are many remedies. We may look to the creation of a public sentiment, which shall regard immorality as a disgraceful thing, to be ashamed of rather than proud of. We may learn to point the finger of scorn at the tempter as readily as we spurn his victim. 
we may prove, both by percept and our own example, that chastity is compatible with health, and that impurity, even when no gross disease follows, tends to deterioration and disorder, that the reasoning which gives a sanitary sanction to immorality and vice is a subtle sophistry. We may cultivate the manly exercises and stamp out impurity by wholesome books, elevating amusements and noble ambitions. We may endeavor to check the spread of these diseases by legislative restrictions. We may inculcate teetotalism and banish enervating habits and too stimulating foods. Each of these measures may do something. Some of them may do much, but all of them have one fatal defect. They're all tarred with the brush of expediency. Expediency and not wrongdoing is the danger signal they show. And when the hot blood surges through young veins in the struggle with an imminent temptation, what becomes of expediency? End of chapter 10, part 1.